Hello. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I am David Osman, and with me again today is Brian Pellegrini of Intertemporal Economics. Our subject for this podcast, the outlook for the US economy and financial markets in 2024. The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of top quality independent research and data providers from across the world, both micro and macro. Some are stock pickers, some are sector specific, some are country specific, many are global and all are investment related. We live in a time of heightened geopolitical and economic uncertainties. One of the most important questions is about the outlook for the US economy. Is the US economy heading for a soft landing or a recession in 2024? How will monetary and fiscal policy respond? And how will the economy's performance affect the political situation in the run-up to the US presidential election next November? What will all this mean for the US bond market, stock market, and the US dollar. To answer these questions and more, I'm very pleased that we are joined today by Brian Pellegrini, who is the founder of Intertemporal Economics and the firm's senior analyst. Brian founded Intertemporal Economics in 2018, previously worked with Bernard Connolly as a senior analyst at Connolly Insight, where he specialised in geopolitical event risk, monetary policy, labour markets, and energy. Prior to Connolly Insight, Brian was employed in various positions across Wall Street, including working with high-growth technology firms raising capital, structuring options trades, and valuing asset-backed securities. Brian has an MBA from Columbia University, a Master of Science in Finance from Northeastern University, and a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Columbia University. He is also a CFA charter holder. Intertemporal Economics uses an in-depth analytical framework which is based on microeconomic foundations. This allows an understanding of endogenous factors and patterns of human behavior that cannot be analyzed using quantitative techniques alone. The firm's research focuses on topics affecting economics, interest rates and asset prices in developed markets. Brian, welcome back. Let's start with a short introduction to the advisory service that is provided by Intertemporal Economics to your various clients. Hey, David, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, to, you know, to a brief review of the, uh, the advisory service. So my clients are looking for um, uh, a deeper understanding of the, the drivers of causality in markets and in the world in general. And so what I do is I look at areas uh, of interest in markets and uh, the global economy and geopolitics where I think that the, um, uh, the, the market consensus is misunderstanding the drivers of causality, either underappreciating how important the situation is in general, or uh, the mechanics of the situation that, that what is going to determine outcomes is being misunderstood. And so I look into, um, I take deep dives into important factors and 
try and explain to my clients what's going to drive the outcome. And to do this, um, I look at economics as a set of toolkits, right? So just like a, an electrician has a tool, one toolkit and a plumber has another toolkit. Um, at different times and in different places, the different toolkits that have been developed across time by various schools of economics have pluses and minuses. Um, and so uh, one of the most important toolkits that's underused in general by economists is Austrian theory. And I think that is uh, at the current time in most of the developed world, the most pertinent toolkit to be uh, applied. Uh, and so um, as topics come up, I write these notes for my clients. They're generally deep dives that provide them tools for thinking about how to position their portfolio. So I don't try to tell them how to do their own jobs. They're all experts uh, and they don't need me to tell them on the micro level what to do day to day. But I do provide them the tools to help make better decisions. And that's that's what I've prided myself on. And that's what um, my very loyal client base has uh, stuck with me since 2018. Turning first to the US labor market and the outlook for inflation and economic growth, are there growing signs that the beneficial effects of labor force participation growth have largely played out and a return to inflationary conditions in the US economy in 2024 is therefore looking likely? If so, is the US economy destined to be mired in a period of stagflation in 2024? Yes, unfortunately, I think we're headed for uh, a period of hot inflation in uh, 24. And, and um, the, the leading indicators of that are, are definitely starting to show up. And it will start to show up in the measured inflation probably in the spring of 2024. So inflation is sort of like a, a pipeline, right? And the measurements that uh, you know the, the, the Federal Reserve bases its decisions on uh, unfortunately come at the end of the pipeline when you and I buy products and services and it gets measured, that's what they're making their decisions on. But uh, the factors that drive the inflationary process are coming in at the at the front of the pipeline. And that's where I put most of my attention. Um, so there are clear signs that, um, uh, especially in the labor market, one of the big factors that is um, driving my view on inflation is that you have much more um, labor market unrest. Uh, so you have strikes um, in the United States and strikes in the United States are a very reliable uh, forward indicator of uh, manufacturing wages in particular. And so we've seen uh, manufacturing wages had lagged service sector wages, but they uh, have caught up and are now rising faster than service sector wages. And uh the labor market unrest has continued to worsen. So uh, the red hot period in the service sector where uh, many young people had dropped out uh, of the labor market and were living off of government stipends in, in 2021 and 2022, um, that, that's passed, right? And uh, they've come back into the market and there was a beneficial period of debt disinflation as a result. But we're shifting to a new phase in the labor market where uh, skilled non-college labor, so skilled blue-collar labor that, that the manufacturing sector needs, um, that is in very much in short supply. And it's, it's starting to show up in the, in the wages, and that will feed through into inflation before too long. And the other factor that's been 
very beneficial has been the improvement in the supply chain. Um, and basically this, the, the, the low interest rates during a period of supply chain tightness, it allowed everyone to stock up on inventories, right? And then all of a sudden interest rates went up very quickly and holding inventory for corporations became a very expensive affair. And so they destocked and they've been destocking. That process has now largely played itself out. Um, so we're likely to see inflation start to rise in 2024 and probably in the spring, it'll show up in the PCE. And unfortunately, because the Fed has uh, positioned itself as almost not, but not quite, they've been cautious. They've been, and, and they've been diligent about saying how cautious they are, um, but they've set themselves up to declare victory over inflation at the end of the year is my expectation. And um, when the inflation starts to show up and, and, and in an election year, it's going to provide a problem for them. And they're going to likely fall back to declaring it as transitory. It's just supply chains. It's just, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin disrupting energy markets. And so we shouldn't react to these things. We should stay the course. Uh, and they're going to be getting a lot of political pressure as a result. And we're likely to see that um, inflation accelerate for some time, a few months right into the summertime before the Fed starts to move its clay feet. Um, and by that point, unfortunately, there will be substantial momentum behind the inflation and it will require uh, a substantial uh, further tightening to uh, slow the momentum in the economy and, and um, to bring back inflation down uh, to, to um, more acceptable levels. So given what you say, what in your view resolves the diverging economic signals coming from the private sector and the US Treasury markets? That's a great question. Um, I think at the end of the day, uh, policy is too loose for the private sector and too tight for a heavily leveraged government financing system, right? So the banks had loaded up on treasury bonds in 2021 and 2022 because the Fed had suspended the uh, supplementary leverage ratio for treasury bonds. So they knew the government was going to have these huge deficits that it needed to finance, and they wanted to incentivize banks to buy the bonds. Uh, so they said, well, they don't count for your capital ratio. And as a result, they loaded up on the bonds. Uh, but then there was this fast reversal of monetary policy into tightening mode and bond banks were stuck with all these unrealized losses. That came to a head in March of 23 uh, when the, the crypto shadow banking system started to unwind and, and we almost did have the recession that everyone was expecting. But by coming to the rescue of the bank's unsecured depositors, what the Fed did was bail out the crypto shadow banking system and say, okay, we're going to deal with this with regulation instead of economic consequences. And as a result, that the, 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 the um, bank term funding uh, uh, program, which is willing to swap bonds at, at par, that provided a cash uh, a supply of cash, an ATM, if you will, for the banks themselves and bailed out the sh crypto shadow banking system. And and that expanded the public money supply. Suddenly, the money supply, which had ambiguously included deposits created as a result of uh, uh, stablecoin tokens, right? 
those were ambiguous money for a while. It was private money. People treat it carefully. They're not sure. Is this really money or not? During the period of the banking, mini banking crisis, that seriously came into question and the decision was coming down as no, these are not actually money. But the Fed coming to the rescue said, wait, wait, no, actually these are money and you don't need to worry about it. You can count, you can leave them in the bank as unsecured deposits and you'll be all right. That created a sudden wave of liquidity for the banking sector, which despite the tightening in interest rates, right, which has had an effect on the demand for credit, the supply of credit has been plentiful and it is showing up uh, in private sector activity. On the other end of the spectrum, the uh, the post-2008 regulations seriously tightened the balance sheet capacity of the primary dealers that the federal government relies upon to fund its debt. So that system became much less flexible, right? And in as a result of higher interest rates and short-term funding policies by the Treasury Department, now all of a sudden the interest expense has expanded and the need to finance that larger deficit caused by higher interest expense and higher spending is putting a severe strain on this very inflexible financing system. So the Fed has a real dilemma on its hand. On the one hand, the private sector needs tighter monetary policy. Uh, on the other hand, the federal government is having a really hard time financing its deficit and, and probably needs looser policy. But if you were to, so if you were to tighten the policy for to that to bring it to a level that would um, bring the bank credit creation under control, you would very quickly break the treasury financing system and, and a financial crisis would result. So as a result, um, I think that the, the Fed is likely to start to look for options to incentivize banks to buy, um, uh, to buy more treasury bonds. And as part of that, they're going to assure them that the, the bonds that they do buy will not result in more unrealized losses further down the line. So that will likely result in a, um, perhaps a, a, a form of yield curve control that differs from um, the way it's been implemented by the Bank of Japan. They won't be buying bonds. They'll be using the standing repo facility to swap bonds for cash. And that will, unfortunately allow the credit creation in the banking sector to continue. With this troubled outlook for monetary and fiscal policy, how do you see the US bond market and stock market performing during 2024? You're likely to see a short-term period of high volatility right early in the year, and that will be the prelude to uh, uh, yield curve control, right? So we've had this um, easing of mar conditions in the treasury market as everyone says, oh, well, I guess the, the Fed isn't going to tighten as much as we were worried about and the uh, liquidity is returned to the market. But as inflation starts to show up and if the Fed, as I expect, uh, blames it on transitory issues and says, don't worry about it, we're not going to do anything. Um, the long end of the treasury curve is going to experience some severe volatility. And the way that the Fed reacted to to treasury market activity recently has been to say it was irrational and unwarranted uh, and say, well, we don't really know why it's been happening because um, it doesn't make any sense and therefore it's, it's, it's not legitimate. And so 
likely they'll react to that by implementing some sort of policy that um, puts a cap on long-term um, uh, rates and brings down volatility in um, uh, in treasury markets. In the stock market, it will be an interesting situation because um, inflation is good for some companies, right? So if you have uh, a fast sales cycle and if you have the ability to uh, rapidly adjust prices to market conditions, you can make a boatload of money, right? So certain sectors that are less dependent on um, uh, private financing, right? So they don't need to raise a lot of money to, to do business and who are able to react quickly and cash in on um, uh, inflationary conditions, those sectors will do spectacular. Um, other sectors are going to get are going to get hurt, right? Because they're going to be facing higher long-term bond yields. Um, although not the treasury sector, the treasury department will not, but the, the, the rest of the bond market likely will. Um, and if they have the inability to um, quickly cycle through a sales cycle and increase their prices, they're going to be hit with higher input costs uh, before they're able to raise their prices. And so they're, they're, they're going to get caught with hurt margins. So I think there's very much a, a sector divergence that takes place uh, in, the, in the in U.S. stocks in 2024. So given the domestic outlook, along with the high and seemingly rising global geopolitical risks, do you expect a strong dollar in 2024? Well, I think the key question when you're talking about the dollar is strong versus what, right? So um, I think there's definitely some room for the dollar to outperform against emerging market currencies and, and risk currencies. Um, but at the same time, I think that the falling real interest rates, right, relative to treasury bonds, um, if treasury bonds, uh, if yields are capped and, and inflation's rising, then those real interest rates are going to be falling. And that's really good for gold, right? So gold and um Perhaps given where the yen is, uh, it's 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 weakened pretty far to the to the limits of where the BOJ is willing to put up with, and at the same time we've had um, pretty hot inflation uh, and labor market readings coming out of Japan, so there's probably room for some outperformance in the yen. Uh, but uh, in terms of places where the the ability to do business in a geopolitical um, disruption is called into question. Uh, so, you know, emerging markets that are heavily dependent on ocean going trade. Those are those are places where I would definitely uh, bet on the dollar. Now, when we turn to the um, politics in the run up to the US presidential election next November, will the state of the economy be the decisive factor in determining whether it will be won by the Democrat or Republican candidate? And do you expect it to be another Biden versus Trump contest? I mean, it's, um, you know, starting with the second question first, I guess, to get that out of the way, because I think that plays a large role in determining how much um, the economic situation plays a role in people's minds. So Trump definitely has, among the Republican candidates, uh, a lock on the economy guy uh, question, right? So he's the others have 
geopolitical um, credentials or uh, cultural credentials, but Trump definitely has a lock on uh, the guy who knows how to run things in the economy, right? And so, if it's him, uh, it you know it's 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 hard to see at this point that it's not because the other candidates really haven't distinguished themselves. They they've tiptoed around him, and he's refused to enter the debates. Um, so they really have no way of setting up a clear choice between them versus him. And as a result, because of his name recognition, he wins on that. So it's possible that somebody cracks that code and is able to directly engage with Trump. And perhaps as the number of um, alternative candidates in, in the Republican Party gets down to one or two, perhaps that person is able to directly engage with Trump and, and make a clear choice. Uh, but if if they aren't able to figure out how to do that, then he's the guy. Could that person be Nikki Haley? Possibly. I mean, the the the, the uh, geopolitical situation certainly lends itself to her being distinguishing herself as a potential choice. Right? People want strong American leadership on the geopolitical scene that is um, rational and not necessarily just flag waving, right? So they want someone who will stand up for their country and take principled positions, um, but not necessarily someone who's bellicose and, and uh, you know, just willing to, to say slogans. Um, and that, that really benefits Haley. Uh, but she has not shown herself to have the sort of pizzazz that will get the attention of the media, which is what drives uh, short of, unless you have your own personal fortune that to, to force uh, the media to pay attention to you um, just by buying ad time, uh, you need to use personal flair. And she really hasn't shown that. Uh, so that's that's worked against her. But, but if the geopolitical situation um, deteriorates further, and if we have the unipolar moment be further called into question. That's a real, that's a real big question right now is um, in many ways um, reminiscent of the lead up to 1914 in that um, prior to that time, uh, British consuls had uh, sold no, at, at par, no matter what was going on in the world. Um, and even ge- geopolitical crisis just didn't come into uh, investors mindset because Britain was the unipolar power prior to 1914. When 1914 happened, you had a, a, all of a sudden a switch to a multipolar world and uh, British console prices uh, fell significantly and they, 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 they had to put a floor underneath them, which, which really limited how far they fell. And that's akin to U.S. yield curve control. So if you have a situation where um, you, Russia, China, and Iran form an effective anti-U.S. alliance that really brings the unipolar moment into question. People are going to want an answer. How do we deal with this very new situation? Uh, and that provides an opportunity for Haley to, uh, to distinguish herself. And it will perhaps bring uh, the economy down in terms of voter priority. Um, but if, if things do cool down geopolitically for a period and you get really hot inflation early enough, then there is uh, room for the, for the economy question to dominate the U.S. Equ- uh, elections. And on the Democrat side, 
Biden will be 82 next November, can he be a creditable candidate for the following four years? Uh, I mean, that's really the big question. And even the Democrats are seriously questioning that. Uh, but the power of the party politics in the United States is immense, right? We have a duopoly and the power of the two parties to exclude anyone from certainly outside their parties, but even from within their own parties uh, is, is significant. So if the party, if the Democratic Party uh, bigwigs <laughs> um, decide that they do not want to tolerate uh, a challenge to Biden, then they will definitely exclude that person from debates and uh, any sort of venue where uh, an alternative candidate could uh, distinguish themselves. So, uh, you know, and I expect that we'll see that if Robert Kennedy is perhaps the best uh, potential dark horse candidate that could uh, act as a Ross Perot. And I would expect that if he performs well in the polls, the rules will be changed to exclude him from the debates of Trump versus Biden. I don't think that that I don't think that the party uh, apparatus will allow their favorite candidates to be seriously challenged. And do you expect a close election? It really it 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 comes down to I think how dire the situation is in terms of the geopolitics and the inflationary situation in October of 24. I think if you have red hot inflation, right, if it's if if things accelerate fast enough and people are really feeling the squeeze, um, then you could have a, a, a substantial margin in the election. If you don't, right, if, if inflation has only gotten back to 4%, let's say, or 5% at that time, and if the things are relatively quiet on the on the geopolitical front, then uh, it comes down to pure people's pr preference for virtues, right? Which system of virtues, new establishment or old establishment, do they prefer? And that's a much closer run question from uh, if inflation is at, say, 10% or 12% uh, and or there's a, an invasion of Taiwan ongoing, which would, October would be when it would occur. If those things are occurring, either or or both, um, then the um, the opportunity for a wider margin where it becomes clear, okay, Biden's not the guy. We need someone else, uh, and and a an uncontested result becomes more likely. Brian, many thanks for this very interesting insight into the service that is provided by Intertemporal Economics. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail your views about the divergent political trends in the United States. It would also be interesting to hear more about your views about the geopolitical risks with respect to China, Russia and the Middle East. The Independent Research Forum is offering a brief trial to the Intertemporal Economic Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Brian Pellegrini of Intertemporal Economics. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening, everyone.